Hello, everyone. I hope you've had a good week. We have an amazing guest today, but before we start, a note on our sponsor. So if you're trying to move to a plant-based diet, but you're worried about getting enough protein, you might want to check out Tribe. So Tribe are a rapidly growing nutrition company, and they create tasty plant-based protein bars and protein shakes to help you get the energy you need. They're also gluten-free. To try a pack of Tribe's nutrition products, head to wearetribe.co slash out of hours, where you can customize your first pack of their energy and protein bars for just £2, and that includes shipping. Just use the code tribeoutofhours at wearetribe.co slash out of hours. I'll put it all in the show notes. It could literally be you. That's how it is. Like, it, it, there's no, there's no like science for who is stalked or who gets. There's none like that. So, it could be your brother. It could be anybody. Actually, people who work with me have been stopped and extorted. So, it's come close to home. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, the community for people with side projects. Over the last year, I've been spending my time exploring how to help more people progress the ideas that they're interested in. I believe that everyone has a great idea and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money or network, but also self-belief not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the podcast, we have Odun Aweni, the founder of Feminist Coalition. Feminist Coalition is a group of young Nigerian feminists formed by Odun and her co-founder Dami in July 2020. Feminist Coalition, also known as Femco, started with a clear mission to champion equality for women in Nigerian society. But in October, as the Nigerian NSARS movement surged, protesting the brutality of the special anti-robbery squad in Nigeria, Femco felt they had no choice but to act. They decided to help first by simply setting up a form for volunteer lawyers, and then went on to fundraise to support those affected by the protests with medical and legal care. They raised over $380,000 in just two weeks, starting first by raising Naira and then moving to Bitcoin and they even got a retweet from Twitter's founder, Jack Dorsey. Despite being launched less than a year ago, Feminist Coalition has been recognised across the globe. They were featured in the esteemed Bloomberg 50 for 2020. Odun and Dami were also recognised by Vogue as part of the 12 leaders that changed the world in 2020. And she was also listed on the Time 100, the list of the most influential people in the world. In this episode, we talk about how Femco started, why they started, why they switched to raising Bitcoin, how she managed to do it all alongside her day job, which is COO of PiggyVest, which counts over 2 million customers, and how she learned to deal with criticism and the huge role her father played in who she is today. I love this conversation and I hope you enjoy the episode. 
The Feminist Coalition describes itself as a group of young Nigerian feminists championing for change in Nigeria and focused on women's issues. In your words, can you describe how you see uh, the Feminist Coalition or what the Feminist Coalition is? With 13 feminists that came together to kind of like, uh, we just said, you know, something has to change here. There's been over the past few years, kind of an awakening of um, this generation of Nigerian women. So there's just kind of like a lot that we've decided that we're not going to take and a lot that we decided has to change. But we also recognize that the change has to be structural. One of the things that we realize also is that as mostly middle-class women, there's some kind of privilege that we are afforded in terms of this change that less privileged women are not. And so we kind of have been thinking around it and finally came to two conclusions that the bottom line of the oppression of women and really any minority group always drills down to money and power. So we decided that there are ways that we can kind of start in our own small way to balance the skills. And that's why we formed the coalition. So for listeners who don't know Nigeria very well, are you able to kind of give a bit of an overview on how feminism and women's rights are seen in Nigeria? Yes, Nigeria is a developing country and it's also a very conservative country. Naturally, they do not see or accept feminism well here. I will say, though, as a caveat that over the past few years, it's become more mainstream but still not as much as you think. So the idea that a woman is choosing to not get married or to get married and just like not fit into those traditional gender roles and stereotypes or rejecting certain treatments and certain pigeonholing of women is still not seen favorably here. Women saying that we want equality is something that's still by and large a bit strange here. So feminism is getting more popular. We, have, we owe a lot of thanks to Twisa for that, for those conversations. But there is like millions and millions and millions of people who are not on Twitter and who are not having that conversation with us. And so there's still a ways to go in terms of reaching them. I was listening to a podcast actually with your co-founder. They were talking about some of the kind of laws that exist still in Nigeria. Yeah. Right. So like, yeah, there's a 14 years uh, prison sentence attached to gay marriage in Nigeria. Um, there is certain laws that, you know, um, affect the autonomy of a, of a woman. Like one of one of like the feminists on Twitter actually started an experiment where every day she would tweet a law uh, across Africa, really, that's prohibited for women. And she started more than a year ago and she's still not run out of content. So. Wow. What kind of stuff is she saying? Uh, I want to find the handle. Uh, oh, yeah, I did find it. Today is day 279. And today's tweet was really in Liberia. If a minor acquires land or landed property, the right of guardianship over that property lies with the father. The law by default vests the power of guardianship onto the child's father to the exclusion of the mother. So she started this on the 23rd of May, we're in 2021, and she's still going. So that's kind of how you need to look at women's liberation and women's rights from an African perspective. I think I heard in that podcast that there still hasn't been a gender equality bill passed in Nigeria. 
Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think we are going to pass it at this point. I think we'll have to wait for say maybe another administration. It's not priority, unfortunately. Mm. Because I, th I think it's important to almost to set the backdrop, I think, of how bold I think it is what, what you're doing in lots of ways. Because there are some different laws or different kind of stereotypes, it's slightly different country by country. And I, I think it's an interesting looking at the backdrop. Why did you think it was important to set up something that was dedicated to women's rights? Right place, right time, right person, I suppose. Dami and I, Dami is my co-founder at Femco, also co-founded a women's initiative called Wine and Wine. And Wine and Wine is a women's events organization. So what we do is organize events around conversations around women. So young professional women just come together. You know, we drink wine, analyze problems that young women face, and then try to find practical solutions so around financial literacy, around rights and safety. And in 2019, we had this like big, huge physical event that was an all-girl party, right? And just before the party, we had a panel session. While the panel session was ongoing and it was a very spirited conversation among just women, we had two things happen. One was there was like all these serious issues that were bubbling up. Dami and I were like, you know, it, and actually it was pointed out to us that Perhaps you should do something about like all of these really serious things that keep coming up. And there was a second thing. A man tried to enter an event that was billed as like all women. We had paid for the venue. We had done everything. And yet the right to gather as just women, he was trying to violate it at that particular point in time. And so it just feels like no matter what we do, we can't win. So might as well. Right. And so. After the wine and wine party in 2019, it took us another six months to kind of keep going back and forth. Should we do this? Should we not do this? And then in July of 2020, we decided, let's do it. Put a list together and reached out to all those women. Incidentally, they all said yes, because on, on some level, everyone had been thinking this kind of initiative is very necessary. So it was kind of easy from there. And so in July 2020, we came together as the Women's Coalition. And then, you know, we had been going back and forth on what will our first project be, how do we move forward? And then October came and, you know, it was basically baptism by fire. We just decided perhaps make this the first project. So you form officially in July and then a few months later in October, for anyone who missed what happened in Nigeria at that time, can you sort of walk us through what the NSARS movement stood for? The NSARS movement is not the product of 2020. NSARS is about three, four years old. And it's essentially um, a, a movement against a particular unit of the Nigerian police force called SARS, Special Anti-Robbery Squad that was formed to prevent robberies and then graduated um, gradually to start to terrorize like young Nigerians. So if you have tattoos like I do, uh, and you happen to be a guy, you are very likely to be stopped, extorted, sometimes illegally arrested, beaten, tortured. Some people have been killed, allegedly. You know, people, it, it's just like, there's been a lot of suffering from the hands of this particular squad, especially for young men. Um, but like women were definitely not left out. We've seen women that were extorted, beaten as well. So this has been going on since 2016, 2017. 
and perhaps maybe like longer. We don't know, but that's when videos and photos started to come to social media. And so that's when the NSARS movement itself started. So the hashtag has been on Twitter since 2017 at the very least. Every time we'd complain, it would reach a crescendo, the government to say we've disbanded this force or we've done this or we've done that. Every year, you know, it would be the same thing over and over and over. And then I think in October, in October of 2020, something happened around them again in Delta State. Delta is one of the 36 states in Nigeria. Everyone had just had enough. People started to protest. I, I will say that the protests were peaceful. But on the first day of the protests, we, had, we weren't involved at this time. A set of videos that surfaced on the internet where on the first day of the protests, one of the women, unclear if she was out to protest or she was just a passerby, was shot by um, one of the armed forces or the, the authority, police or SARS itself, I'm not sure, at close range in her mouth. There was a lot of blood and she had to go for surgery and... We had to fundraise for her to get reconstructive surgery because one of the, the infrastructural challenges that we also face here is like lack of proper health services. And so fundraising was ongoing for her to get treatment. But the conversation that it then spurred for me was in all of these situations that are outside of the normal, when there is war, when there is disturbance, generally in like developing countries, the people who usually suffer the most are the women and the children. And it was just clear to me that people were protesting peacefully, but there were outlier events. And if there continued to be outlier events, we would find out that it would be women who are suffering, like the woman who was already shot. I could already uncomfortably visualize several women getting harassed or assaulted just by virtue of coming out to protest and their safety not being guaranteed. So I got on the phone with my co-founder, Dami, and I told her that, look, I know that, you know, this isn't a largely, in fact, it's not one of the pillars of FEMCO at all. FEMCO's pillars are um, financial literacy, women's rights and safety, and legislative power for women. But I think that it's important for the safety of the women who we want to fight for in future that we join this particular effort and this particular movement to provide some structure right and make sure that people who are going out to exercise their constitutional rights are able to do that in a way that is safe and um, that agreed with me and then we uh, like got the entire coalition and the call it was an hour call and we knew that we had to do something around providing food and water and then resources like, you know, legal aid being on ground, ambulances being on ground, and security. So that's kind of what the extent of FEMCO's involvement was, just to provide some kind of structure to allow people safely and properly, but yet be able to exercise their constitutional rights to a peaceful protest. So you get on this call and you decide that you need to do something. It's something you have to respond to, even though it's not part of your kind of core focuses. What was the first thing that you did? Well, the first thing that we did was kind of, and this wasn't even me. <laughs> so uh, one of our founding members, Ire, designed like a makeshift logo and designed a makeshift website. Ire is really great. She's like one of the best programmers out of Nigeria, actually. So 
it was great to have her like work on that. And then I went to work designing the form where people could apply for funding support for these resources. And then we also had to set up kind of a virtual account to receive donations. And then we you know we had set up a Twitter account and an email address. And so we did all of that in the night. It was very like bare bones, skeletal structure kind of thing, but it, was, it felt really good to you know be doing something that was, it, this was very important to our generation and of people this time, not even just women. So it was just like, it was great to be able to play a part, however tiny, in making sure that voices were heard. So you set the website up, you set up this, uh, this Twitter account. Um, so are you starting by focusing on funding for people who need like legal aid and medical aid? Yeah, so we, it was actually, yeah, it was across all three from the beginning. So we, first of all, we set up a form for volunteer lawyers who wanted to be like on standby. So there was about 600 to 800 lawyers who applied to just like volunteer across the country. Nigeria is a big country. So that was very, very cool. And then, you know, we had to get like security agencies, private security agencies to get private security onto like the possible protest grounds. And then we were also, people were applying for funding for food and water, masks, cause we were in the middle of a pandemic. Sometimes it rains so or raincoats. It was kind of, it was very structured in a way that I, I, I have to say that I'm actually still really proud of what, like, the entire, like, young young people, the youth population was able to come together and create this thing. It was very impressive how structured it was. So people were getting money for food. And then at some point we had restaurants stepping in to feed people. Were you one of the main organizations funding these peaceful protests or... What was your kind of role in it in relation to all of these other kind of organizations that were helping? I think everyone was kind of just like doing it independently. There was, there was no like, this is the organization of the protest. No, it was very decentralized, if I can use that word. Like, and it was really organic. So everyone was just like, we need to do something. And then people just did. So by the time we joined, there were several organizations already on ground, already working. So we just came in and kind of started to do the work as well. Just talking about the NSARS movement. So you said it's been going kind of for the last five or so years. And I think I read somewhere that often what happens is that they get disbanded and then they sort of launch again, but under a different name or, you know, in a different, is that right? There's so many things that have happened, like disbanded, disorganized, changed. We don't know, but we know they still exist. And that's the problem. So, you know, you can tell us many things, but if people are still getting brutalized on the streets, then we don't know what to tell you. These protests started in October. How long did they end up lasting? Well, they lasted about two weeks. I think by two weeks after, and, you know, the narrative depends on who you ask. We, um, we think that, you know, the protests got like hijacked by elements that were just like not for the NSAS cause itself. And then it all ended up in a very violent event that happened on October 20th. Which is the Lekki massacre. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Do you want to talk about that at all or... You know, I, I don't think that <laughs> I don't think that we've fully been able to process what happened that day. And if you ask, depending on who you ask for us, um, we know that people were lost that day. For some people, they say it did not happen. So it's not like it's not a great discussion point. We do hope that on some level 
people who died, because we know that people did, are able to get some form of justice. We're still holding out for that. What That's about all that we can say about it. So at the end of these protests, the government come out and they say that SARS has been disbanded. Yep. Is that the end of it? How do you see the kind of future of this? <laughs> you know, they, they said that SARS has been disbanded and maybe it has been. I don't know. Um, we've mostly been indoors and the reports in all honesty have reduced, but they've not been totally eliminated. Just yesterday, just yesterday, as we're speaking today, one of my friends was actually arrested last night and was only released at 11 p.m. You know, everyone like can insist on what they want to insist on, but we know what's still happening. On February 13th, you know, the Lekki massacre happened at the toll gate, right? And the toll gate has been shut since then. And then the government, the panel, Lagos State did constitute a panel to try to listen to the victims of SARS over the past few years and see if they can get them justice. And somehow, I think maybe a few days before the 13th, we just heard on Twitter that there was a vote to reopen the toll gates. So on the 13th Saturday, a group of people went to peacefully protest the reopening of the toll gates. And I mean, this is actually hilarious because I couldn't believe it. All of them, 40 of them were arrested and they were released very, very in the very early hours of the morning of the next day and they were beaten, right? Yeah, and they were packed into a van, their clothes were removed. I, I think I, I would just leave like everyone watching to draw their own conclusions, to be honest. It's like, well, what are we really saying? Because I'm loath to make conclusions on, you know, all of these things, but we can clearly see that something is still operating outside the bounds of the law, and that represents a problem still. Mm-hmm. And how did it feel getting involved in something that was ultimately a protest against the government? You know, I, I will say that it wasn't easy. I, I am not inherently a political person. In fact, I, I can actually say I'm not a political person. I don't enjoy talking politics. I don't enjoy being involved. I try to stay as far away from it as possible. I do think, though, that it's very, very hard to constantly hear people being arrested, people being beaten, and not whispered to do something, right? Political or not, I'm human, and at the core of it, that's what I think the movement was about. It could literally be you. That's how it is. Like, it, there's no, there's no like, science for who is stopped or who gets... There's none like that. So it could be your brother. It could be anybody. Actually, people who worked with me have been stopped and extorted. So it's come close to home. So despite not being a political person, I didn't feel like I had much of a choice. And so that's where it is. I, I, you know, I can't say that it was an easy decision, like, because, again very diametrically opposed to you getting involved in matters like that on a normal day. But this particular one, it didn't feel like, you know, yeah, you got to choose your involvement because by virtue of being a young person, especially one who works in tech, you're somehow involved. Because you started Feminist Co. anonymously, right? Well, we started Feminist Co. involved in this movement anonymously. <laughs> Because we didn't, <laughs> so I am, um, you know, that Nigerians have a very interesting relationship with feminism, and in the early days of the feminist coalition actually launching to support the protest, you could have seen the like replies, "Oh, feminist, oh, feminist." So it was 
that was kind of some of the reason behind the anonymity, although we did have to quickly shed that. How did it feel going public with your involvement, your personal involvement? We were very nervous. We were very nervous. I would say that some of us have personal brands to protect. Actually, all of us have personal brands to protect. And so that was like a decision that we were wondering, should we take it? Surely because of the inherent politi- like, you know, political nature of the entire thing. So it was a decision we did not take lightly, I'll say that. So when you were sort of pu- going public with it and they knew who, who was behind it, did it result in any backlash? Oh, you know, I'm not at liberty to speak about it, but I'll just say the short answer is yes. So we definitely got some not so great results from that. And for like maybe a month after that, our lives were kind of upside down. I saw on your article that you released, I want to quote it, but if you don't want to talk about it, then we can skip right through. No, I, you know, it, I, I can say anything that was in that article, but I don't like, we can't really speak to outside of it. Yeah, of course. I'll read it to you just in case you want to sort of comment on it. This passage, which says, we woke up to calls from well-meaning people letting us know that we were being watched by security agencies and our phones had allegedly been bugged. We all left our homes to seek protection, scared, confused, and wondering why a simple request for human rights was being treated as a national security threat. Yeah, that's actually correct. It was a very difficult time. (laughs) Like I said, we've all tended to stay away from political issues. And we also didn't think that, you know, providing food and water and legal aid and security was anything political at all. But I understand that the entire movement was kind of, we are protesting, like, authority, like, can you guys treat us better? But I did not think that the fact of feeding people who were, like, not breaking the law, they were absolutely not breaking the law by, like, going out to say, treat us better. So I do not think that like feeding them and, you know, the, you know how like interesting the protest was at the end of every day, people would pick up trash bags and start to clean up the locations they were at. That's how structured it was. So I thought like there is, there cannot be anything wrong with this, getting food, making sure people who are out there are safe, not, they're not disrupting like anyone's work and stuff like that. So when this whole thing started it was just like I can't believe this (laughs) and you started fundraising initially just via Flutterwave yeah it was a Flutterwave link yeah one day um, the link was taken down for maintenance and it never came back up and then we couldn't receive Naira we don't know what happened because there's no official communication it was just like from my perspective, that's all. It was like very like a snap of the hand and nothing was working. And we were not told anything. So the link was taken down. You don't know why. But then what that actually meant was that you were able to use Bitcoin, right? Yeah. And how many people in Nigeria have Bitcoin? How sort of prevalent is it as an asset? And I know that there's at least 500,000 Nigerians who are actively trading cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. I don't think 500 covers the like casual... Um, or I, I like now I, I I would say I'm a casual Bitcoin like holder. So once in a while you use it for a particular purpose for a gift card here and the Spotify subscription there. Like I've used it to pay for my Spotify several times. I'm one of the casual ones, but there's like really active ones across all of these exchanges. And so it was very interesting when we had to pivot to Bitcoin. It kind of forced me to familiarize myself with the currency. So you launch this link and then you start to accept Bitcoin. 
I think greatly helped by a retweet from Jack Dorsey. From Jack, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Casual. What yeah, was that about? I, I, I honestly couldn't tell you. I, we did not see. Even I didn't know when it happened. I was offline doing something and someone sent it to me. So I was just like, what? And then, you know, he did. And then all the other like important people started to like talk about it. And it was crazy. And then we had Joe Biden speak up for us. We had Hillary Clinton, which who like is one of my idols. Actually, she's my major idol. Speak up, and I'm like, wow, I cannot believe that we have the attention of all these people. And it was all so crazy. Talking specifically about feminist coalition, not about femco, God no. But like we had Beyonce allude to a coalition, which is awesome. And then we had Jack spoke about the coalition specifically and quoted out to it, and that was amazing. It was one of the important things that happened. One day he just quoted one, especially, I think it was particularly when we made the switch to cryptocurrency. Jack's very interested in cryptocurrency and probably has like a tweet deck set up to like read whatever like is happening with crypto around the world. And this one was particularly, like it was generating a lot of noise. So what was his tweet? Was it a retweet of something that you'd sent? I do not remember. I, I know he used the hashtag and asked people to donate. So you switch from these traditional payment infrastructures and then you move to, to accepting Bitcoin. How does that impact your donations? It slowed it down, again, because adoption, right? Mm. But um, I would say that it was, it was great to also see people wanting to do it in Bitcoin, mm. right? So like it, it did slow it down a little, but the willingness of people to figure out the currency and use it just to donate and make sure that young people continue to be heard. Possibly the most heartwarming thing that happened the entire 2020. So it was really cool to see. I actually asked a member of the Out of Hours community whether she had any questions for you because I saw that she followed Feminist Co on Instagram. And she was saying that she is curious to know about a roadmap. So in terms of looking outside of NSARS and going kind of back to your core mission, what do you plan to do to kind of realize your mission to champion equality for women in Nigeria? And also, how do you plan to make it sustainable? NSARS was an outlier event. Our job is mostly focused on structural, fixing structural problems in ways that we think that we can. And you can only fix structural problems in sustainable ways. And so we're going to be looking and targeting at different sectors of the economy and designing projects around that targeted at empowering sustainably women. So we're not going to be giving them money or giving them food or, you know, giving them things. We're just we're going to be figuring out how do we take you from point A to B in a way that you can continue on by yourself. So uh, right now we're working on four different projects, um, three independent ones. And the fourth one is we had a food drive last year at Christmas where we were able to give food to 1,000 people and women from underserved communities for like the month for their families. This year, we might expand that number to 5,000. And so that's kind of what our December project will always be to make sure that X number of families can also celebrate. But outside of that, we have every year, there'll be three independent projects that we will start commission and then hand over to managers who continue to make sure that they continue to run. That's kind of how we look at it. So this year we've already been working. As you might know, Femco is not in business of like announcing here's what we're doing until we've done it. So that's why we've been silent since December. Love that. 
So your plan is essentially to to almost come up with the the kind of core impact areas and then come up with ideas yeah. of how to solve those problems and then hand it over to people who can actually execute because it's important as well to to remind everyone listening that this is not a side project that's become a full-time thing it's very much still a side project. <laughs> yes. Every every single member has like a like a full-time thing that they are doing. This is something that's more like a passion project for all of us. And so we're very, very like eager to continue it. But we also like recognize that we also need, we also kind of need help. So we would execute like to a point in a way that lays the foundation of each of these projects and then others can build up on it. That's kind of how we think we can make it sustainable. Thinking about the busiest times so far, how have you managed to do it alongside a full-time job? Because for anyone listening, you're a COO of uh, Piggy Vest. It's served a million people, right? Over two million customers. Oh my god! Yeah, it's just mad. And and you're you're doing this on alongside of that. I mean, do you sleep? I do sleep. I didn't <laughs> sleep like in October. Like I was running on maybe two hours sleep daily. I would just sleep like this in front of my computer and open my eyes. But that wasn't healthy, obviously. So we actually all had to kind of take some downtime to recover from that and then continue. So it, it is, again, one of the brilliant things about Femco is that each of these women is accomplished in their own right and incredibly hardworking. So it never feels like, you know, you're carrying a lot of the weight or anything like that. And, you know, like women are always working, always be working. I love it as well because it's 13 people in total, which is by any measure quite a large group to manage. What are your processes and structures to kind of make sure that decisions are made and you can move quickly? It's been like large, easier actually than you would have, you would expect. I, I don't think like I have like a proper explanation for how this works, but it does. So Dami and I are co-founders. Everyone else is founding members. And so... What's been interesting has been kind of seeing we, we come present ideas uh, and those ideas more than more than like more often than not end up getting refined. So people will be like, oh, I, I agree with this, but I disagree with this part. How about we do this? So it's not really a here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do it kind of thing. It's more this is what we think we should do. What do you guys think? And then we come out with a product that's the better for it after presenting to the team and together. So far, that's kind of how we've worked. Um, even on the selection of the projects that we're picking is usually more of a communal pros and cons approach than a, you know, you vote, you vote. Now we kind of, we, we really thrive on conversations. How does it actually work? So you propose, uh, the co-founders will propose something and then... And anyone can propose, really. Anyone can propose. Um, I, I, I will say that, like, People do like run it by the co-founders first, which is great, but we try to not make it like, oh, there is a hierarchy because you know, that doesn't really function well for initiatives. Mm. So you can run it by us. We'll tell you our thoughts. Feel free to use that to modify and then we'll present to the larger team. One of the goals that like we have is actually the sustainability of each and every project. So what we, we don't want to build projects around ourselves. That doesn't work. That's not scalable. So it has to be sustainable. It has to be transferable. For people who are listening and they're like, this is so cool. I'd love to do something like this in my city or something, you know, locally to me. Do you have any tips of kind of what's worked in bringing it to life? I will say that we're just starting. We're not even up to a year old. I think that starting these kind of things with like-minded people 
and not people who you have to win over, perhaps the best foundation for an initiative like this, right? We picked each of those women based on an aspect of FEMCO that we think they fit into. So we have partnerships, we have communications, we have operations and legal. Each of all these people fit into like a piece of that whole, right? And that's very, very important. So what, what do you want your organization to do? And what does your organization need to achieve that? That's kind of a great place to start. Suppose recruit for capabilities you need specifically, and you can recruit people for their influence, right? People who have massive followings and, and are like-minded, which is again really important. Are they like-minded? Yes, that has to be the baseline. And then you know, like-minded and has a good grasp of journalism. Like-minded and has influence upon this like subsection of people who we are trying to target. Like-minded and is good with partnership. Like-minded and is great with like operations. Like-minded and is like amazingly technical. We could all be there if we didn't have Ire. I don't know. Would we be hiring a coder? I don't know. So Ire is like, she's our head of tech, this woman who's been fighting for women's rights as well. So those are two amazing qualities that we needed. Glad she said yes. They fit into like the entire like the jigsaw that's needed for Femco to achieve the mission that we want like it to achieve. You touched on personal brands a bit earlier, and I think it's a really interesting point around what is the role of a side project in both building and destroying personal brands. Um, (laughs) How kind of intentional were you around that? Were you thinking this just needs to exist? It doesn't really matter that, you know, my name's associated with it. I think we were very intentional. (laughs) I'm already a feminist, so whatever destruction of the personal brand would have occurred since coming out publicly as feminist. So there's that. So the effect wasn't too outsized, I'll say. In Nigeria, when you're a feminist, there's like a subsection of people that automatically hate you. So eh, all of us are like publicly like, and and this, I, I can't believe you have to use the word publicly declared. Yeah. We were already like loudly and unapologetically feminist. And so it was just like, everyone wasn't surprised. Does it ever feel like dangerous to be advocating for women's rights or is it just unpopular? I would say that mm, it's not as dangerous for me as it has been for some people, right? Uh, I would say that it is extremely unpopular that, and you know, sometimes like as a feminist, you are also shielded by privilege. Mm. Right. As if you are a, for instance, middle class woman who's a feminist, a different experience than if you're a lower class woman who's a feminist. It probably represents more actual danger. For me, it's really just ex- the extreme unpopularity of it. Right. Like it's really extremely. And at some sometimes it borders the dangerous, but not as often as for other people, I'll say. So but during that particular period represented danger. I would love to get your thoughts and your advice on being unapologetic and being brave, because I think for lots of people with passion projects, irrespective of where they are, you know, that what they are is putting yourself out there, putting what you believe out on the line and just being kind of unashamed about that. Naturally, the more the bigger a side project gets or a passion project gets, you're going to get some people who disagree with you, who vehemently disagree with you or even just mildly criticize you. And it can be really painful for people. How do you navigate that unpopularity of being feminist? It's unpopular with some people and it's really fine with people. So the first thing I suppose would be like to be very specific about whose opinion means something to you, right? Because I can 
probably tell you that a lot of people who feminism is unpopular with, in some ways, it doesn't really matter to me, like, what you think about, like, my ideals and my values. Mm. Those are my ideals and my values, right? So whose opinion is important to you? And why is it important to you, right? Those are, like, really cool things to kind of figure out. For instance, my family's opinion is important to me. And it's not important to me because I'm related to them. It's important to me because these people, the people that my, my family members, are the people who've built me up, right? And if there's any particular part of my family that doesn't accept who I am, that person will, that person's opinion will not be important to me. For some people, it's harder. For me, it's just that is what it is. And I, I will recognize the fact that I was lucky uh, to have parents whose entire like parenting strategy was allowing us just be, mm. right? My dad, my mom, they just, you know, who do you want to present to the world? Who do you want to be? They had great advice for us, but there was never a time where we were forced to be one way, right? And even if they tried to force you, just you telling them, I, I don't really want this was enough for them to kind of like, okay, you know, we understand. And, you know, it's not easy for everybody, but having that foundation was very, like, very helpful in being able to go out into the world and say, this is who I am. You know, what you see is what you get and things like that. So it, it, again, it's a function of whose opinion do you hold dear? And why do you hold it dear? When you start to question the why um, and you kind of become slightly more self-aware about the reasons why that person's opinion is important to you, if it's shallow, then you should probably feel free to let it go. And if it's not, and then maybe you and that person need to have a conversation about them understanding more why you hold like dear what you hold dear. Before you do any of these things, though, your relationship with yourself is the most important. Like people can only really like make you hate things about yourself that you already hate about yourself. Right. It's all like this really incredible, complicated journey that when you take it like and it's sometimes painful. The end of it, like just like it makes the entire thing really worth it because you know, when I was growing up, I used to get teased a lot about not being very girly. And I, what, what my dad would do was have a conversation about, like, what does it really mean to be girly? So now I know that there isn't one way to be like this person. There isn't one way to be anything. In fact, one of my, one of my tattoos is the Schrodinger's equation, uh, which basically means that two things can be true at once. And when you inherently carry that knowledge, people cannot criticize you for doing these things one way, like because you're not doing it their way. So the journey of being unapologetic starts from like the journey of self-awareness. Who are you? Why are you? What is it? What motivates you? What do you want to achieve? Answering all of these questions helps you form your values. I would, I would, I would like to play my part in improving education and also women's rights. Those are the two things, right? Like, for instance, I used to have this conversation with my dad all the time, and he was like, you need to figure out what you want to be outside of everything else. And then it's easy to go out into the world and just be this person who has all of these answers about, like, the inner you, that when someone says, oh, you are this, it's easy for you to not care because you know who you are. Again, I was very lucky to not have to go at it alone. My parents were very, very cool with the whole, like, finding yourself and questioning and questioning and questioning thing. Other people are not so lucky, and sometimes you do have to answer these questions alone. But while it's painful and while it's really complex, when you get the answer and you kind of know, this is who I am, it can apply across different characteristics, right? 
Are you a shy person? Are you a person who's not skinny or conventionally attractive? All those weird things that the world kind of throws at you and society tries to pigeonhole you. Once you are like comfortable in your own skin, the rest of it kind of comes easy. You said that it was a journey. And actually, one of the other podcast episodes I did was with a guy called John Furno. He did a magazine about coming out stories. We talked a lot about self-acceptance, how how hard, but also how transformative it can be when you decide for yourself what your values and your morals are. But I'm always curious on practical things that people can do. And I know that a lot of it is learning through painful experiences or through kind of organic stuff that's not manufactured. But were there any kind of things that you did can you remember any moments in your life where you really sat down and asked yourself those questions? Yes, I, I, I've had to. I've like, for instance, I've always been the youngest in like most of my classes. I, I started school really early. That was at least a year or two younger than like most of the people in the class. And so like, like easy target really. And I was also kind of odd. <laughs> and so uh, I, I, I have Asperger's and I have ADHD. So a bit odd, a bit different. And people would like make fun of like the wildest things. A lot of times we, I'd go back home and, you know, it would be like conversation with my dad. And just like, there was a time I actually sat down and asked him, daddy, am I ugly? And my dad is like, well, who said that? And, you know, there was a very long conversation. I don't remember most of it. I remember him taking me to my mom's full length mirror and they're asking me, you know, do you like who you see? And I'm like, yes. And my dad is like, that's all that matters. And, you know, I never forgot that. And it was the same thing for every different thing that happened. It was, the, you'd come back home with a problem, you know, you'd explain, you'd run. And my dad would ask you, okay, you've told me, what are you going to do about it? And then we'd sit down and start to craft a solution. So I had a lot of moments of like questioning myself, why am I this way? Or why, like for instance, um, when when someone had told me in school, this was like around maybe when we were like in GSS3, I was 10. And some person was like, why are you so fat? And I went back home and I asked my dad, why am I fat? And I was like, you're not fat, who said that? And then he starts to ask me like, what does it really mean to you to be this? All those like really um, existential questions. Why do I like these things? Why do I not like these things? Why do I behave this way? Why do I not behave this way? To his credit, it did help me like form like a developmental like interest in asking myself these questions. And so I had a lot of like difficult moments, difficult pockets when I was growing up, but kind of made it easier to have, you, you don't immediately internalize your question. And so my journey was mostly around questioning, tearing apart inside of my head and asking questions. Why does a person feel the need to point this out? Does it affect them in this way and things like that? And society is very, like, it's really punishing for people who are not, like, made conventionally or behave conventionally. A lot of that is you just stepping back and asking yourself, interrogating the values that you hold. And if every day you find those values being reinforced, then you do owe it to yourself not to change. You have to question, always question. Because you sometimes you have to like reevaluate like your reason for thinking one way or the other, but a lot of times you also like it requires kind of some strength to hold steady in understanding that you are who you are and this is not inherently a bad thing. It's interesting. I feel like there are two types of feeling attacked or feeling criticized. One of these kind of like yeah. big moments where someone says something, which is a very direct statement. Let's say um, 
let's say feminism, right? They say, I hate feminists. Okay, that's clear. And it's based around a value, right? And so you can kind of go, okay, do I, do I not? Okay, well, they've got a different view to me. That's that. But then there's also people who will say something that's a bit less clear. It's just a criticism, or it's just like a a negative comment, which can be harder to unpick in that values based way, because you don't understand it. How do you approach those more like generic criticisms that come your way? I ask for clarity. If you make a blanket criticism and I ask, like, what do you mean? And you don't answer, this becomes your personal problem. It's no longer mine. And I I definitely hope that there is like space to kind of educate people on why, you know, we hold this movement very dear and why like a lot of a lot more of us should be very invested, even if you were not morally invested, financially invested and economically invested in the freedom of women, because that's only a net positive. There is certain ways that you frame some things that I think, oh, it's worth talking about. And there are certain ways that you frame them. I'm just like, no, you know, let someone else do the work of educating you. There are also certain things that people will say that, you know, that like debating the humanity of a woman or, or the gay person. Those are not arguments that you want to have because that's the baseline, agreeing that everyone deserves the right to life, right? It sounds like, as I say, there's this like experiential way of dealing with it, which is knowing your values. And when someone criticizes, sort of comparing what they're saying to how you've decided to be, do you write them down like your values? Is there any way or is it just something? (laughs) No, I I don't write them down. Uh, I I do think that I think they are formed over time. I've been, I suppose, on the path to feminism for a while, probably since I was like six, because of an event that happened when I was six. And so I've kind of recognized that. Society does something different to women from when I was like six. So uh, when I was six, I went to, I was in Bible camp and, you know, we had like a Bible quiz competition on the like second to the last day of camp and I won the competition, right? And then the next day, our parents were gathered like to pick us and do the prize giving. And on during the announcement, they announced the boy who'd come second as first and announced me as second. And so when my dad came to pick me, I was telling my dad, I did not come second. My dad was like, no, you came second. The price says that. Congratulations. I'm like, no, it's not about that. Like, I didn't come second. And so, like, to his credit, most people would dismiss a six-year-old talking, talking. But my dad was like, what do you mean? And so I start to tell him, like, this is what happened, right? And then he takes me to my teacher. And the teacher is like, oh, yeah, this is what happened, but this is why. And my dad did not want to hear. So she came first, said, yes, okay, why why did she get first? And he pursued this to the level of the bishop, we're Catholic. So he pursued it and made sure that it was corrected. From that moment onwards, I was like, why would they announce the guy? You know, why would they announce the boy? Why didn't they announce the girl who came third? It was just weird, tiny things like that. One, there was a day at home, I was working on the computer and my mom was like, come and help me in the kitchen. And I was like, I don't want to. Like, I, I don't want to come to the kitchen. And my mom is like, well, how you, if, you, if you don't learn to cook, like, my dad was like, oh, yeah, no. My dad was like, oh, no, he, he disagrees. She'll learn to cook if she wants to learn to cook. She doesn't have to do it now. Perhaps he should have agreed then because I really never learned to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, those are kind of the things that we had in my home, in my house. And there were no, like, gender roles. Uh, my dad would assign literally anybody to any kind of chore. Mm. You, know, you I could be washing plates one day and be washing the cars the next and the same was for my brother and my brother is actually a much better cook than I am so that's kind of how he raised us in this very 
easygoing. You know, my teachers would report me and my dad would follow me to them and ask them, why? What did she do? I saw people's parents' reactions to when their parents reported and when their teachers reported to their parents. And it was wildly different from when you reported me to my dad. Like, he wasn't arguing that I didn't do anything wrong, but he wanted to know exactly the situation. That, I thought, was very just and very fair. And so I try to do that now. And so those are the kind of things that, like, help you form your values. And basically how people have treated you over the past few years. Is it fair? Is it not? And then, you know, all of these things kind of make you into this person who's hopefully able to, like, challenge, like, norms and all of those things. Your dad sounds amazing. He was. (laughs) What's so funny about that is that it's an example of how men can play such an active role in feminism. I agree. Yes. So many of your examples have come from your father and like the way that he gave you space and held space. He he did it for like all four of us. And it was this really amazing way. A lot of the people who were around us then thought it was strange. Like for instance, I was was like, I think it was in 2019, I think. I I just recently gotten like tattoos and I came home for Christmas and my dad hates, like he really hates tattoos. But what he hates more is people trying to criticize like his kids on like baseless reasons. Cause when like people came to the house and were like, ah, what is all this man? It's like, they're tattoos. What do you think they are? Uh, he'd flip sides. <laughs> this is not something that he agrees with on any level. He just like that, like you are making your own decisions. So he would, he doesn't have to agree. And that's what like I found very like, potent and I hope that I'm able to live up to that kind of thing where I don't always have to agree uh, but I can fully understand and appreciate when people do certain things for themselves Mm, it's amazing what an amazing way to parent yeah he he tries (laughs) I'd just love to ask you about your vision for the future what is your vision for Nigeria is that too much to ask (laughs) or is that like just a simple question to end on I, I do have a vision for Nigeria where we're just like bottom line all kinder to each other that's over the past few years the level of interpersonal kindness has deteriorated so badly so it's something that i think that we all need to get back to is recognizing the humanity and you know i'm guilty of this sometimes and i think that like as nigerians we all are recognizing the humanity of the person next to you just being generally kinder and Understanding and appreciating where the person is coming from and why perspectives might differ. Not a vision, just something I hope can happen. Vision is very complex. There's so many things we need that like my vision would have to fix all those things like from inside out. But yeah, I, I really would like to see a Nigeria where the people, first of all, to the exclusion of any other thing, just kind of try to get along. And for Feminist Coalition, what's next for them? laser focus on the women like you know how i was telling you that during wars women suffer we can just use covid as a yardstick for how like much like a lot of the progress we've made kind of reversed because of covid working women having to quit jobs to stay home with their families and things like that and even in families where the husband and the wife are working when it comes to like this entire stay at home and parent at home, is the woman who's suffering because she has now two jobs, two full-time jobs in the house, right? The pay gap kind of regressed, the funding gap regressed. I don't think Femco can fix it all, but I do think that as a person and as an organization, we can like just like make a tiny dent and hopefully impact legislation in those sectors. So for 2021, we've already chosen the projects and we'll be announcing as we find success. We'll go on year by year by year like that, just setting achievable, sustainable goals. 
are you accepting donations at the moment? No, we're not. We're not accepting donations. Um, when I, when we start to fundraise again, I suppose the internet will all know because you know, we'll just announce it. So Twitter is at feminist.co and I think Instagram is at feminist. No, Twitter is feminist underscore co and um, Instagram is feminist.co. And we're verified on both platforms, so you should be interacting with the verified handle. Thanks so much for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. If you want to check out more about Out of Hours, head to outofhours.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do consider leaving it a review. 